curious about how it's going to turn out. <laughs> it's more of an issue of like what's enough, what's not enough, what's too much. Um, as we sort of center Native American Heritage Month, um, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. You know, Emily, before she left, she said, thank you for, you know, just creating a church that's hard to leave or sad to leave. Um, and I think that's magnified because of the way in, in, in which our pastors lead, the way in which they invite, the way in which they steward, the way in which um, they cultivate and, and set a table for others to show up to. And um, I can say that oftentimes I'm in this space where I'm going, oh, that's the first time I've ever been in a faith community that's said that, that's made space for that, that's cultivated that that's I mean I'm preaching to the choir right um, and I'm just grateful for ways in which they've allowed me to show up um, so I want to I want to open with a quote from uh, Deborah A. Miranda a Chumash poet and writer she says human beings have no other way of knowing that we exist or what we have survived except through the vehicle of story and then, of course, our, our dear sister poet and teacher, Maya Angelou, says something similar. She says, there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And our bodies carry stories. We talk about that a lot. And it's true of everyone in this room, despite your ethnicity or where your ancestors come from. We have these stories, and for some of us, our bodies are, are full of buried stories, untold stories that have been buried by history as it's unfolded, stories that need to be carefully excavated. For those of us that uh, often find ourselves in that place where we are exploring and excavating these stories, we find ourselves sort of with a shovel in one hand sometimes and what seems like a self inflicted dagger in the other uh, because we know that this sacred work it's full of beauty and almost like simultaneously full of grief and we've talked about that and we've heard that from so many who have named that in our church familia so we need to tenderly bring these stories into the light so that we can be healed and so that they can be honored And when we do that, when we, when we get to a place where rediscovery, rewilding, whatever re you want to add there, there's lots of them. Um, when we get to that place, um, I think this, is, this has been true of me, but when we get to a place of rediscovering untold stories and retelling those in community, uh, that can be a healing bomb that begins to have this antiseptic power full of the spirit, full of love, full of grace, patience, mercy, all the things that are necessary to hold stories in a community like this. It's been so true of me, not just to share, not just for opportunities like this, but to, to, to like witness and bear witness to others, whether they're up here or it's over there in the lobby, wherever it is. It's just such a healing antiseptic thing to hold these stories so as we sort of set this table for Native American Heritage Month, I, I extend a little bit of my story 
of my own story, a little bit of the story of my maternal Chumash lineage that is traced through my mother and through my grandmother as an act of worship, of communal worship of reclaiming what has been buried. So I'm a mixed blood descendant of the Chumash people. Like I said, this is traced through my mother, through my grandmother, who is the matriarch of our whole family. Before any Spanish flags claimed the land as their own, this specifically California land as their own, these California natives, Chumash included, flourished for thousands of years, like thousands of years. The Chumash, along with the Tongva, were the first natives to settle here almost 11,000 to 13,000 years ago, anthropologists estimate. So a little education, you know, California, in terms of conquest, uh, it's, it's the last outpost of the Spanish Empire. It's the last empirical conquest of the New World. Everywhere else has literally been conquered and colonized and claimed. And though the first contact of California was in 1492, we know that date well, right? Though the first contact of California people with the Spanish was 1492, um, it really wasn't until the mid-1700s when this land was officially settled by Spanish missionaries and Spanish conquistadors and, and soldiers. And all of this, of course, has been incentivized by something called the Doctrine of Discovery, which gave authority for the Spanish church to claim land and colonize it if it wasn't Christian-owned. So Nicola said this in, in, in our acknowledgement. You can't claim land that's already inhabited, and yet it happened because of who inhabited it. So in 1768, the Spanish start to settle California, sort of the last tier of land to be dominated. Really, it was a race to conquer it before other European cities and, and uh, countries got there. Two years later, this moment, uh, two years later from this moment, uh, the Spanish actually settled in the coast of Santa Barbara, which is the, the hub of the Chumash people. That was 1770. This was the genesis of the mission project, of the mission period. The missions are 21 conversion factories built and constructed of flesh and bone and blood and grief, all in the name of God. From San Diego all the way up to San Francisco. And if you grew up in California and you perhaps grew up in the 80s or the 90s like I did going to elementary school, uh, you might have done something like the Mission Project, right? So we know this history. It's sort of, it sort of shows up, mostly mythical, uh, but it's here. But within 60 years of this period, of this establishment of the coastlands of California, nearly 80% of California Indians would die within 60 years. My family lineage barely survived this mission period as 150 Chumash villages were relocated to various missions built on Chumash land, governed by Franciscan padres. These padres, in my view, they malformed servants misguided by harmful dogmas and theologies that, that say they can own land, not their own, and own bodies, not their own. All of my ancestry 
on my grandmother's side, it really just stops and ends at the Santa Barbara mission. And this is the epicenter of Chumash culture. This is, this is the starting place, the birthplace. And I'm often finding myself as faith leader, as a former pastor, as a Christian, trying to reckon with this other, this like devastation, this utter devastation and this erasure done to the Chumash and other Native Americans in the coastal lands of California, all in the name of Christ, all for God's glory. And as a follower of Jesus, I just, I just can't reckon it. I can only renounce the idolatry and evil for what it is that perpetuated such violence and oppression in the name of our God, the God we've come to worship, although we will soon figure out that's not the God we see in Christ. But we have to be willing to say some of this quiet stuff out loud, to excavate some of this buried stuff out loud. So in order to do that, um, you know, part of, part of what we're doing is sort of storytelling, but also a little bit of education, and then like some sort of story sermon that will peek its head at some point. Um, I want to read an excerpt from a book called Bad Indian, which is a tribal memoir of the woman who I started the quote with, um, Deborah Miranda. And what she does in some of the first chapters of her book is she poetically retells and re-engages the mission project from where she's socially located now. Uh, she had grown up in California. She moved away before she actually got to complete that fourth grade mission project. Um, but she, uh, she starts to retell the mission history really as it was. And she goes over certain aspects of the history, and this is a specific section that talks about the Padre, that talks about the Franciscan priests that, that governed and cultivated uh, this mission system. And here's what she says. The Padre baptized us, gave us names and godparents. Sorry, let me stop really quick, because uh, what you're going to see is some, some artwork that I've generated that I've been doing around... Um, just this lineage and this story, uh, and I forgot to, to do that, and, and she, she's doing her job back there, so. <laughs> uh, but uh, this, this sort of artwork that you're going to see is, is um, called Padre's Dream Cotton Ash. Um, so as you keep this in mind, you'll see an actual Chumash pictograph that I recreated, um, and... Uh, I want you to sort of visually and, and verbally, orally sort of hear uh, this poetic uh, excerpt. So here we go. The Padre baptized us, gave us names and godparents. He taught us our catechism, officiated our first communion, posted our marriage bands, performed our weddings, baptized our babies, administered last rites, and listened to our confessions. He punished us when we prayed to the wrong God. He taught us to sing because our songs were ugly. He taught us to speak because our language was nonsensical. He made us wear clothes because our bodies were shameful. He gave us wheat and the plow because our seeds and acorns were only fit for animals. Yes, the Padre. He was everything to us Indians. At the end of a whip, he taught us to care and kill for invasive cattle. He taught us to work the fields of wheat and corn and barley 
and make adobe walls for our own prisons, build the church, stock the storerooms. He promised it to us if we would just grow up, pray hard enough, and forget hard enough. But it all went to Spain, to Rome, to Mexico, to the pockets of merchants, smugglers, priests, dishonest administrators, and finally the cruel Americans. Nothing left for the children of Padre, who worked so hard to civilize poor savages, pulled from the fires of certain hell. He was our shepherd, and we were his beloved and abused flock. Now the fields are eaten down to nothing. We claw at the earth, yet even the roots are withered, and the shepherd has gone away. But we are pagans no more. We are now Christians, Christian vaqueros, Christian housekeepers, Christian blacksmiths, shoemakers and laundry women and wet nurses and handymen. None of us paid more than a meal or a shirt or a pair of discarded boots, but Christians. Poor Christians, drunken Christians, meek targets for the 49ers, crazed by gold lust and the ranchers hungry for land. We are homeless Christians, starving Christians, diseased and landless Christians. We are Christian slaves bought and sold in newspapers or on auction blocks in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. $100 for a likely girl, $50 for an able-bodied boy, free for whoever bails out the elder of jail. Every one of us baptized by the fathers are primitive souls snatched from a hell that our bodies cannot escape. We are Christians. We are Catholics. We are saved by the Padre, and for that we must be grateful. We have to be willing to name this stuff. To do it artistically, poetically, literally, historically, however you want to do it. Being able to name a mythical mythology of mission, of the missions that graze this coast. By exposing these myths purposely hidden, intentionally buried, and retelling them, not as noble stories to educate school children, but as, as for what they are for the grief they hold. One of the things I was talking to Inez about is like, you know, we, we uh, once a month go out for a food and fellowship led by dear sister Melika. And for a few of those times, we've went to the San Gabriel mission, right? And, and we've gathered to um, love on one another, to celebrate one another in community. But there's a history there. And, and, and they're largely trying to... Um, salvage that history. There is some truth-telling that is happening, trying to repurpose the land for the community, right? Some of these, it's one of the first missions that's actually doing that in Los Angeles. Um, all the other missions are really just still missions, like, like history missions. Uh, but we've, we've stepped foot on these properties with, with blood in the soil, right? With grief and lineage lost, all of these different things. But we have to be willing to call it out. And for me, part of that is rediscovery. Part of that is exploring stories that have survived these injustices. Because they're worth preservation. They're worth the dignity of retelling, of, of re, uh, rewilding. And as used that word in the meeting that we were in, but just this idea of letting them be 
the stories, not, not retelling them through Western eyes, not, not reshaping them through what's logical or that's not good, like storytelling arc. You got need a beginning, middle, end. You're kind of going all over the place, Mr. Indigenous Storyteller, right? Because these stories, they mattered, and they're very different than the stories that, that we value and hold. Because stories, they can be the most powerful thing in the world because story is culture. And story is ultimately lost when we stop, or sorry, culture is ultimately lost when we stop telling those stories. Because again, human beings have no other way of knowing that we exist or what we've been through, what we've survived, except through the vehicle of stories. These stories of who we are, of who I am, of where we've been, of how we've arrived there, what we know, what we once knew, what we wish we would have known before we knew what we knew, what we know of others, what we know of the land, what we know of our place in the land, all of that stuff matters. And as an act of reclaiming culture, in tribute of my grandmother who passed in May, I want to share a true mesh creation myth with you and explore meaning. Explore uh, a little bit of the meaning as I've found it. Now, the thing with indigenous storytelling is uh, sometimes the story never changes, and the, but the meaning changes all the time. It's more often than not what the person needs to hear and gather. Um, not so much exactly how you dictate a story for a particular agenda and outcome. So I want to share a story. I don't know what that experience will be for you, but uh, just with open heart, with open mind, I want to share a story and reclaim... Um, a little bit of this. This is the story. It's called, it's called The Creation of the Human Hand. Um, and again, it'll be paired with original artwork um, that I created. And maybe before we do that, um, even for myself, let's just take a breath. Just to center ourselves as we extend this story to you, to your ears, to your heart. Here we go. Before the flood, a great celestial council, which was comprised of sun, moon, morning star, along with the coyote of the sky, and slow, who was known as the great eagle. They all gathered around a table rock in the sky to discuss whose likeness the human hand would be created in. Coyote of the sky argued with the great eagle that people should have his hands because his hands are the finest in all creation. They are quick and strong. Eagle argued that people should have his hands because his hands are wise and he knows what it is to be. As they argued night after night, Lizard, who was also there but not at the table, sat nearby quietly and said nothing. She just listened. Again, they gathered around this beautiful table-like rock in the sky, perfectly symmetrical, made of fine white texture, with whatever, uh, made with fine white texture that whatever touched it left the exact imprint on its surface. Coyote eventually won the argument, and before he was about to stamp his hand down on the table rock, to show his impression, 
Lizard, who had been standing silently, also reached out and pressed a perfect handprint onto the table rock. Coyote became angry because sun, moon, morning, star, and eagle approved of Lizard's handprint, praising it over Coyote's. And this is why our hands are shaped in the likeness of Lizard's hands. If Lizard had not been courageous that day, our hands would look like Coyote's hands today. Chumash elders say that her handprint is still impressed on that table in the sky. So a story like this is meant to be explored. I thought about doing that in community, but I, was, I just wasn't sure I was going to have the time and how long this was going to be. And if I go long, just consider it reparations, you know. Um, I'll just take your time. You take land, even. <laughs> but a story like this, it's, it's important for the Chumash community because it centers, an artisan, it centers and honors an artisan culture and creative resilience found in Chumash existence, in their history. When you learn, and, and like Melika, I encourage you to learn and do your own education about the people who, who uh, once owned this land. So the Tangva, uh, the, the Totavium in the San Fernando Valley, and then from Simi Valley in Malibu all the way up to, to uh, San Ynez, uh, the Shumash. But it, it centers their artisan culture. It centers their creative resilience. Because the Chumash, they're, they're, they're known. If you, if you look and you just do a simple Google search, you will know them for their artwork, for their, pave, or their cave paintings. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, a paint, there's a cave painting that is literally like a mile and a half from where I grew up on Chumash land. Right? Of course, we didn't own the land. It's called Simi Valley, California. You know, Ronald Reagan owns it. Uh, it's Reagan country. I think, that, I think he owns it. Um, but, like, I grew up from one of these spaces, still there. The dye used from clay, from ash, from charcoal, from uh, diatomaceous earth, all of these different things to get colors, you know, so that they can tell history on these walls. And, and there's, there's thousands still around in caves you can visit today. You know, they created these baskets with um, just these patterns that were insane. These patterns that, that um, scholars say there was this inherent, like, like, like mathematical precision to how they had to do this to keep perfect symmetrical and pattern that they just can't, they can't, like, explain, right? Just this intuitive in their craftsmanship. They created these boats called tamoles, these wooden rafts that were, were part of the redwood that would drift down in floods and rains from up north, and they would get, and they would harvest, and they would build these huge boats that would carry 20 Chumash back and forth from the Channel Islands to the shore of California and up and down the coast for trade, right? They would use uh, uh, tar mixed with uh, tree sap to seal it, and then they would weave these boats together, and they would fit 20 men and up to 500 pounds of fish. It's just insane, right? Hands that, that, that fashion abalone beads as currency, building a local economy. Chumash actually means bead maker. 
hands that cultivated all that they needed from the land and all that they needed from the sea and from the river. And listen, all of this would be incredibly difficult to do if we had coyote paws, right? I mean, right? Can I get an amen? And for me personally, when I, when I, when I first discovered this story, um, man, I just found myself in it because I love lizards. <laughs> like, like, no joke, I love lizards. And listen, we've all heard about uh, Pastora Inez's monarch butterflies, right? Like, if you know, you know. And if you don't, welcome to the church we hope for. We hope you fill out a connect card. You can get coffee with Pastor Inez. We'll talk about her butterflies. I love lizards. Since the time I was a boy, unaware that I was in the wild, in Chumash land, like touching and grabbing and capturing and watching the same lizards of this story because of the synergy of the land. This California lizard that we all see, that we've all probably caught once or twice. I just loved the uh, connection, and I didn't realize, but, like, I started to think through my life, and any time I hear a scurry, like, I stop. It doesn't matter if I'm in a rush. Like, when I leave, like, we have, like, low-key a lizard guarding in our house because my wife has done such a good job of, like, rewilding our, our, little, gar- our little front porch and back porch with native plants. But we have these lizards, and literally we've lived there for four and a half years, almost five uh, no, almost four, sorry. But, like, every day I walk out, I see the lizards, and I audibly talk to them. It's a part of just me, like, reengaging. I literally talk to them. I sit there and I watch. I, I do, like, contemplative lizard watching. This is, this is a part of my formation, cultivating this lizard garden. And there's this photo. I, I think, it's, yeah, it's right there. But this is just a, a, about a month ago. Um, this little guy... They love our front porch because it's really hot brick, and, and, and um, we constantly find them in our house. But this little guy, he, he came into the house, and, you know, I had to exude all of this, like, energy, but really, like, like docile energy and, like, craftiness to try and rescue this lizard out of our house, uh, which I did. And then an hour later, he was, and I let him go, and then an hour later, he was back in our house. And this was the second time I took this picture. And when I was taking this picture, it's my hand with this lizard, and you can see the lizard's hand. And I kind of recalled this story that I had read, and then I, like, went back inside, and I spent some time rereading it. And it was in this time that I started to find myself in the story and started to find my faith in the story and started to recognize a familiar, subversive story, one that is a story similar to a story that I think King Jesus would tell, uh, our rabbi, um, It was this familiar story because I started to notice that in the story that I just told you, it's the one who doesn't have a seat at the table. It's the smallest one, the quiet one watching nearby the other. It's the one without knowable or desirable credentials who appears from the side and audaciously takes space in this moment and takes a place at the table. She is seen, her faith is honored, and she is chosen. Like a story we know well, the Canaanite woman. Now again, we know our pastora and her Canaanite women, 
right? If you know, you know. And if you don't, welcome to the church we hope for and fill out a connect card. So I'm not going to tell the whole story, but in Matthew 15, there's this story of a demonized foreigner who comes and kneels at the table of our Lord, advocating for her oppressed, demonized daughter. Jesus replies in this moment with a less than desirable and almost somewhat occlusive sounding reply and says, I was only sent for the lost house of Israel. And it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. But she persists. You see, this story, it's found in both Mark and Matthew's Gospels. Although in Matthew's Gospel, he takes poetic license. And he does it by naming the woman in this story as a Canaanite woman. But in Mark's Gospel, it's a Syrophoenician woman, which is not the same thing. And, and oftentimes, if you have like a you know, view where the Bible has to match perfectly and be absolutely volatile, you know what I mean, uh, you will try and force some interpretation of this. And you will fail because they're not the same. Mark names a Syrophoenician woman probably more because it's more likely. And since Mark is the earliest gospel, we can assume that that was actually a woman that was in existence. Uh, so why does Matthew change it is kind of the question. And I kind of want to riff off this just for a second. But why does he change it? Why does Matthew give a creative retelling in his story? by naming this woman as a descendant of the Canaanites, which was undesirable and very unlikely due to the effects of conquest and colonization of their land. The book of Joshua, erasure and eradication of the former people to make way for the new. It's a familiar story we know. It's a familiar story the Tongva know. It's a familiar story the Shumash know. Because Matthew, he seems to impose these Canaanite Easter eggs in his gospel. And we know a little bit of this from Pastor Arnez's preaching. And the first one to show up is, is, is really in the beginning. As, as Matthew is laying out Jesus' ancestral lineage, he names these four women who I would argue are all possibly descendants from the land of Canaan. In the genealogy. But he also, we have to pay attention to how Matthew frames these stories in his gospel. You see, the Canaanite mother story is sandwiched in between two miraculous stories that we know well. And those are the two feedings of the masses. So you've probably been in, uh, you know, kids church at one point or, you know, um, done a deep dive where you know these stories of Jesus feeding the masses. Right? But there's actually two different stories of Jesus feeding the masses. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, those two are there. In Luke and John, it's just the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but you see that uh, there's these stories of feedings that bracket and sort of sandwich this Canaanite description. This, this Matthew naming the Syrophoenician woman now is Canaanite. He's already done that sort of in the genealogy, and he's doing it here. And those two, two feedings, they really matter. So I, I want to quickly go over them. But in Matthew 14, so we, we were in Matthew 15, now in Matthew 14, 13 to 21, Jesus feeds the masses with the child's lunch. Everyone ate and had their fill. And then after it was all said and done, there were how many baskets of leftovers? Anyone remember? Twelve. 
12. It's a seminary-filled room. I was trying to, I was trying to you know, let you all flex a little bit. Uh, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. And then in Matthew 15, and this is literally the next verse immediately after telling the story of the Canaanite mother, Jesus does the same thing again, feeds the masses, and now there's, does anyone know this? It's one of those Bible numbers. Yep, seven. No one said it, but I was just giving credit over there. <laughs> seven. Seven baskets of leftovers. So Matthew, is, he's sort of creative. He's not sort of. He is retelling this story, engaging in like almost a practice of, mish, of, of uh, uh, Midrash. And he's display, doing all of this to sort of display this radical, subversive Jesus in the text. And it's right under our nose. But if you pay attention, you'll see it. And all the clues and conversations are framed around this Canaanite mother's encounter with Jesus. So, so here's, here's, here's what it is. The first miracle shows how Jesus comes to fulfill the promise of Israel. Twelve baskets, twelve tribes, makes sense. This is Jesus saying to the Canaanite mother, I haven't, just, I haven't come to anyone but the children of Israel. That is, I am that Messiah. That's why I'm here. But she persists. She pushes him beyond that. The second miracle that happens literally right after where seven baskets are left over points to how Jesus is not just interested in reconciling Israel, but also the nations. But specifically for Matthew, he wants to, to, to pinpoint down to one specific group of people. And that is the seven nations of Canaan. These are the seven nations in the region that were conquested, that were, that were colonized, that don't exist anymore. The enemies of Israel, those we can demonize in the name of God to get what we need. Israel had enemies. These are some of the most mortal of his enemies, of Israel's enemies. The original inhabitants of this land. And here in this story, Matthew and Jesus, he's naming them. He's giving them honor, giving them, sorry, my mouth is getting a little, a little chalky. He's giving them dignity. He's restoring not just Israel, but the enemies of Israel, the Canaanites. Those non-existent, those who have been eradicated, come to this, 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 this place, this table, and they find refuge. They find fulfillment in Messiah. And though it seems for a moment that this is all in question, when the Canaanite mother comes to Jesus, and he gives such a weird response. But again, I think if you pay attention to, to what's happening here, you understand that Jesus is offering more than ch children's crumbs that come. Because that's what the Canaanite woman's, even, even the dogs, you know, get these crumbs that fall, right? And then because of that, Jesus heals. Jesus brings liberation, brings healing. All of this is sort of unfolding in this story. But it's even more in, in, in fulfillment when you see this miraculous feeding that represents these, these nations of Canaan that had been eradicated. And it's not just an act of justice or making peace in the moment. This is Jesus exercising radical, subversive table practices. These feedings are the biggest table practices Jesus has, right? This, when he feeds the masses, this is the most inclusive he can be, right? 
when he invites thousands upon thousands. And, of course, if you pay attention to the sermon from Pastor Inez, you know that the 5,000 and the 4,000, those are just men. So, of course, that's magnified by the women and children not represented in the text. So you have this moment where Jesus offers more than crumbs from the table. Not just by offering fulfillment to Israel, but fulfillment to all, including Israel's enemies. Making reconciliation and peace. That again, it's not just a subversive act of justice. It's literally represented in his body. His blood that's flowing with Hebrew and Canaanite blood of his ancestors. This is the very blood that's shed on the cross. This is where Jesus absorbs on the cross. He absorbs through his blood, through his, through his, his death. He absorbs all the hate and the hostility and the harm and literally inflicts it into his body as a scapegoat for our sin. And, and yet he recycles it, not to condemnation, but to love, to mercy, to forgiveness, to inclusion, creating this cross-shaped pattern for us to embody, for us to emulate, for us to follow. Take up your cross and follow me too. And this is sort of what I'm trying to make sense of in the text, what I'm trying to pair together in this story. Because what if the Padres embodied this Jesus? They were embodying a Jesus, a God. A colonial power in the name of a pope, right, of religion, of sacraments, of all of these things that we hold dear too. But what if they embodied this Jesus? What if they had set this sort of table of inclusion? It's in the very same text they were reading. If they had paid attention to Jesus, you don't get doctrines of discovery that see natives as modern Canaanites in the way of their manifest destiny. I've always wanted to do this when you say, say it again, and I say it again, so I'll do that. Okay, I've seen, I've seen you do that with others. We'll do it again. If you pay attention to a cross-shaped Jesus, you don't get doctrines of discovery that see natives as modern-day Canaanites, which that was a view in the way of their manifest destinies. You don't get it. It's incompatible with Christ. What you get instead is you get a shared abundance, a basket of leftovers at a king's banquet where all are welcomed. At the table of the Lord, we find a small, insignificant, quiet, uninvited lizard. And we also find an outcast demoralized, demonized Canaanite mother and her daughter. And if we find them, then certainly we find you, we find others, we find me, we find all. Amen. That's it.